The opinions expressed on this program represent the viewpoints of individual authors or contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of Troy University. This is eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dan Sutter. Hello and welcome to eConversations. I'm your host, Dr. Dan Sutter of the Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. Alabamians are familiar with Mercedes, Hyundai, Airbus, and other manufacturing plants here in the state. And many are likely aware that our state government, often in cooperation with cities and counties, offers deals to get these companies to locate here. And states and cities compete in offering such deals to attract businesses. Perhaps the most notable of these competitions involved Amazon's second headquarters deal, or H2, uh, HQ2, a few years ago, which produced hundreds of uh, offers from cities. An entire industry of economic developers and site uh, selection consultants has emerged to broker such deals. And yet, a large and growing body of economic research shows that these targeted deals are poor policy and tend to fail to jumpstart state economies. If economic development deals are largely ineffective, why do states continue to make these deals? And can anything be done to end what's been called the economic war between the states? Joining me on eConversations today to discuss these questions is Dr. Matt Mitchell of the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. At Mercatus, Dr. Mitchell is a senior research fellow, and he's the director of the Equal Liberty Initiative. He studied at Arizona State University and then earned a master's and doctoral degrees in economics from George Mason. His research has examined many elements of crony capitalism, and particularly uh, tar the targeted development incentives we'll, we'll be talking about today. Welcome to eConversations, Matt. Thanks so much for having me. Well, first off, why don't we get started by, uh, tell us a little bit about what these uh, types of incentives are. What's specifically involved in a package like this? And, and uh, you know, when states offer these packages, uh, how, you know, how much are they end up being worth and uh, what's all in them? Yeah, so I, you know, one thing is it, it might be helpful to think of a incentive and distinguish it from other type strategies of uh, you know, broad-based economic development okay. incentives or development strategies. And what I see is there's sort of two important characteristics. So one is that it is state directed in the sense that it is economic growth through uh, sort of planning. Um, and the other important characteristic is that it is by its nature discriminatory. And so uh, by this, I mean, is it, it is a targeted incentive that's aimed at a particular firm, sometimes a particular industry or a particular uh, location, and it is uh, typically offering some sort of government favor, government-granted privilege to that particular firm, industry, or location in the form of um, targeted tax relief, um, outright subsidies or grants, um, in-kind contributions. The, sometimes they'll, uh, you know, agree to uh, take on some portion of the company's costs or some sort of targeted regulatory relief. So I think those two characteristics are, are sort of important in, in understanding um, you know, what, what this is and how it's different from other strategies for economic growth. And, and specifically contrasted against the idea of say, lowering corporate tax, uh, lowering business taxes overall for all businesses, or even like uh, some states have done, abolishing their corporate uh, income taxes altogether. Because that's general, <laughs> that would apply to everyone, right? Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right. Yeah. 
How many, now I know this, the state of Alabama has done a number of, of these deals, but uh, give us a sense of how big of an issue is, is this uh, nationwide? Yeah, so in some sense, uh, it's large and growing, and in another sense, it's still relatively modest. So here's the here's the large and growing aspect of it. So it's estimates range that we uh, states and localities spend uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of about $95 billion per year mm -hmm. on targeted economic development incentives. Um, to put that in perspective, we think that that's grown as a share of GDP about threefold over the last uh, two and a half decades. So it seems to be relatively large and growing. On the other hand, if you think about this, you know, in the context of the entire U.S. economy, um, it's less than, you know, about one half of one percent of the economy. So it suggests that the vast majority of businesses and firms and economic activity are not actually um, the product of some sort of government incentive. But they gain a lot of attention because of these huge deals that we've been, been talking about, like, you know, you mentioned Amazon HQ2 or Foxconn, um, that a lot of, there's an enormous amount of focus on those, um, and they do seem to be growing in recent decades. Now, uh, I guess we want to get into some of the evidence of whether these uh, pr uh, programs, these targeted incentives work, but when we say work, uh, there's a couple of different ways you, you could uh, uh, raise that question. And I guess the first question would be, do the businesses that receive these subsidies actually end up opening and, and staying in business? Because you mentioned the Foxconn uh, case, and that, that was a famous one where, where you know, it didn't quite work out the way policy hope, uh, makers were hoping. Uh, do, do, do the companies actually operate and, and uh, stay in business as they're supposed to? Yeah, that's a great great question. So we can unpack this a couple of ways. So one sense in which they work is do incentives succeed in getting companies to do things that they wouldn't do but for the incentive? Okay. Um, you know, the idea is it, that the, the incentive did it actually got, get the company to move or relocate to a place or to stay in a place and, you know, not go somewhere else. And the best evidence uh, suggests uh, probably not. So in about 75 to 98% of cases, an incentivized firm probably would have already made the decision that it ended up making uh, whether it got the subsidy or not. And the reason is, um, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, subsidies really, uh, even large ones, still are swamped by other factors uh, in terms of site selection for a company. Um, probably the most important factor that companies seem to worry about is uh, the labor force. Um, but other things matter, you know, location of suppliers, um, location of customers, you know, the uh, overall business environment, um, factors, even just about livability, you know, is it a nice town where will your employees uh, enjoy living there? Those, seem, those things seem to matter the most. Um, so th the best evidence that we have is really gathered from the companies themselves, which is, you know, take it with a grain of salt because they have an incentive to claim that uh, incentives, uh, you know, were the deciding factor. But near as we can tell, in most cases, it probably did not work to, to um, uh, persuade them to do something that they wouldn't otherwise do. Now, uh, an, another way you might think about working is does the incentive benefit the targeted firm or activity? And here it's important to be clear that, you know, the economic theory is, uh, is that, uh, isn't really predicting that incentives will fail to benefit the privileged firm. Uh, you know, if you tax uh, Dan and Matt and you transfer the resources to Matt, we would expect Matt to do better. And so uh, the, the economic data is 
still somewhat mixed, but it probably uh, on net suggests that firms benefit from targeted subsidies. But this isn't particularly surprising. To me, I think a, a more important question you know, for public policy is do incentives actually benefit the communities that pay for them? And on this score, it's quite clear, no, they, they do not work. Uh, so my colleagues and I have recently actually looked at um, over 100 separate um, regressions studying the effect of incentives on um, either targeted firms or the broader communities. And out of these 100 plus um, studies, there's almost none that find you know clear evidence that the broad communities that pay for incentives actually uh, benefit. So you know, then that raises a question, and especially then from a, a national nationwide perspective, uh, you can see you know, the, the, the benefits from the nation from the national standpoint are relatively small because from a national standpoint, whether a, a, a company locates in Alabama or Georgia or South Carolina, well, we're still going to have those benefits for the, the the nation as a whole. It might matter for Alabama. It might matter for the community in Alabama where where they're locating. But as you suggest, relatively weak evidence that it, it uh, benefits. So. Then we started getting the question, if, if they're not very effective, then why do we see states continue to uh, give out these incentives and, and see them uh, grow over time? You mentioned a, a, a approximate tripling uh, of the level of these uh, subsidies. Yeah, it's a great question. So um, sometimes I kind of like to turn this question on its head. Um, and I, I think a, a, a a relevant question is why don't we see more of this? Because uh, the political incentives to hand out these types of things are very, very strong. And in some sense, if you you know take a take a step back and look at the broad sweep of history, um, we are you know really incentives are what characterized the mercantilist age of 300 years ago. You know, government directed targeted incentives that privilege particular firms or industries. That was the norm. That was the understanding of of course that's how you grow. And really, in the last Two or three hundred years, as economists have developed a better understanding of, uh, you know, how markets grow, um, we've kind of rejected that. Um, so, just kind of to be a little bit coy there and, and flip it on its head, uh, you know, uh, uh, I think it's it's helpful to think about that as the norm, and the last two hundred years as, maybe as the the uh, time period where we've gotten a little bit more skeptical about this stuff. But uh, so, in answer to your question, though, you know, why do do politicians hand these things out? They have a very strong incentive to do so. Um, you know, if you are a policymaker, you're a governor, and you offer a targeted incentive to a firm, you can point to very clear, obvious beneficiaries of that policy. You can, um, you know, stand in a um, ribbon setting, uh, cutting ceremony. You can, you know, uh, take the first shovel load of dirt as the project starts. You can point to the jobs that are supported by this. What you, what is much more obscure is the idea that absent this subsidy, you know, take take the Foxconn subsidy of a few years ago, uh, the state had planned to give Foxconn some $3.6 billion um, and were they were pointing to 10, maybe 12 or 13,000 jobs that they could create as a result of this. That's real tangible benefits. Mm -hmm. What's less obvious is that absent that subsidy, the state could have reduced its corporate income tax rate by 22% lowering it from among the top 10 in the, in the country down to right in the middle. There's about 16,000 uh, uh, companies in the state of Wisconsin that pay the corporate income tax rate. Uh, so that's 16,000 companies, each with its own employees, its own customers, you know, its own economic activity that would have been benefited 
if the state had been able to lower its corporate income tax rate. None of that is very obvious mm -hmm. when you see Governor Scott Walker's and you know the President of the United States standing in front of the Foxconn plant with a golden shovel. You know that all that is sort of obscured. All right, but there's. Uh, but there's another element of this, and I mentioned it in, in the intro about how states are in competition with each other, and, and, and yeah. that gets into a very important uh, uh, example from economics, a, a game that, that economists call the prisoner's dilemma, and it's actually sort of the, it's very pervasive, and it's the, the sort of the logic, the cruel logic that ends up being behind an arms race, right? Yeah, so that's right. If you could tell us a little bit about this, uh, you know, the, what's so problematic about this prisoner's dilemma, especially when you have different states in competition with each other. Yeah. So some of the more remarkable uh, ways to think about this are actually to look at what state policymakers themselves sometimes say about subsidies. So uh, you know, we've collected quotes from target economic from economic development agencies, even governors saying, uh, you know, I wish that what I did was illegal. <laughs> and their point is that, you know, it's, it's from a national perspective, it's pretty clear, um, you know, from an economic perspective, it's pretty clear these things don't work through some of the logic we've already talked about and some of the evidence we've talked about. But from a national perspective, it's even, you know, stronger because whatever gain one state has is exactly offset by a loss from another state. So, um, you know, these, uh, some of these policymakers complain that, you know, they wish that their hands were tied a little bit more and that they weren't able to hand out subsidies because, um, you know, it's just such a clear, you know, waste of resources from their perspective. And so uh, this is sort of the classic um, markings of you know, what you call a prisoner's dilemma, where, you know, two or more people are locked in a um, incentive-driven uh, system where their pursuit of rational, you know, their, their rational pursuit of self-interest actually harms everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, part of it is that you and I can talk to policymakers and work them, you know, walk them through the, the economic logic and the economic evidence. Um, but it's somewhat naive for us to say mutually disarm uh, be, right. because, uh, or, or unilaterally disarm because, you know, they're going to feel like, well, the, whether they work or not, my my constituents think they work, and you know, as long as the governor of the next state has this tool, I don't want to unilaterally disarm and stop subsidies myself because it looks like I'm giving up, and I'm just going to let the jobs go to the other state. Um, so, you know, one of the ideas here, and we'll get into this, is maybe there's if, if unilateral disarmament is a bit naive, maybe there's an opportunity to encourage uh, governors and states to adopt some sort of a mutual disarmament. Yeah, and so that, that's like a, the crucial element of a, of a prisoner's dilemma. Once we analyze it, we, we you know, our, our expectation is that people aren't gonna stop this activity on their own unilaterally by themselves. Because when they consider just their own, you know, what's in their own self-interest, it's worth uh, keep, you know, to go ahead and do whatever you're doing. In this case, offer incentives. Even if you say after one deal, you say, I'm not gonna do this again, but you're, it doesn't change the basic underlying logic of the, the strategic situation. You're, you're going to have to face those same dilemmas, that same dilemma again in the future. Now, but what we can do is have some kind of action to, to restrict this. And you know, one possibility that you uh, mentioned in a, a recent paper that you have for Mercatus on, on this, is it, there, there is a possibility you can have Congress or the federal government act in, in a way to uh, uh, restrict this behavior. So how, how might that work? 
Yeah, so some economists have, uh, you know, suggested this idea. Art Rolnick is, is uh, I think, one of the early um, proponents of it. And, uh, you know, one possibility for would be for Congress to actually impose a, a very high tax on states that receive subsidies from local governments. Um, you know, this starts to get a little controversial among free market economists, the idea of, you know, using a tax here uh, to try to open up a market. Um, I, I think what I would remind people, and I'm not sure if that's my favorite mechanism, I think we'll talk about another mechanism here in a minute, the an interstate compact. But one thing I think we, we should keep in mind is, is, you know, a little bit of a historical perspective about how it is actually that the federal government was formed. And arguably, one of the stronger issues, one of the stronger arguments for um, uh, amending the Articles of Confederation and instituting a new, new government was this interstate um, tax competition. So uh, there's this great quote from James Madison who um, said that uh, Virginia was likened to a patient bleeding at both arms. Um, and I think he, he talked about another state, maybe Pennsylvania, like a cask, uh, you know, tapped at, at both ends. And his point was there was all of this interstate, um, you know, taxation and uh, protectionism. The states wanted to protect their locally grown businesses and so heavily taxed the um, businesses from out of state. And this led to, um, in the federal constitution, you know, in the original constitution, there's a provision that says states cannot um, tax um, interstate uh, commerce. And uh, then later in the 1820s, there was a uh, important Supreme Court decision, which also made it illegal for states to, or made it unconstitutional for states to give regulatory preference to local businesses. And these, the, those types of mechanisms, you know, this kind of national government trying to trying to limit local government's ability to impede trade, created a, a national um, market. Um, and one economic historian described that 1820s uh, regulatory decision uh, as like the Emancipation Proclamation for U.S. commerce, mm -hmm. uh, because it really opened it up so that you could businesses could cross borders and not worry about this discrimination. The subsidies, however, are you know still permitted by the Constitution. Uh, are some some argue maybe not, but you know they're still permitted. Um, and so there may be a role for for a larger uh, government like the national government to try to step in and stop the ability of states to discriminate in favor of you know certain businesses and and uh, really it's kind of um, you know almost like the WTO trying to limit um, countries from um, impeding international trade. Well, in Mercatus, you've also come forward with a, a different uh, uh, way to approach this, uh, using, you mentioned the term interstate compact. So uh, first of all, tell us what these interstate compacts are, because they're, they're actually out there. We, we, we have them right now across the U.S. Uh, you just don't maybe hear very much about them. So it's not something that's completely and radically new. It is a, a mechanism by which states have cooperated uh, on a number of, of issues in the past. So tell us a little bit about the, the, what an com interstate compact would be first. Yeah. yeah. So you think of an interstate compact as somewhere between a, a state unilaterally deciding to disarm, uh, you know, we're just going to give up subsidies, and the federal government stepping in and imposing a top-down solution. Uh, an interstate compact is a sort of peer-to-peer -peer solution where, a, where states could agree with one another to lay down their arms in a subsidy war. 
Um, so interstate compacts are actually, you know, in the Constitution, states are allowed to uh, form agreements with one another. Um, and they have been, uh, you know, there's hundreds of interstate compacts governing all kinds of um, uh, potential interstate uh, uh, controversies. So there's water compacts, mm -hmm. uh, there's compacts that govern, you know, driver's licenses, basically saying, you know, if uh, Alabama issues a driver's license, it's going to be valid in New Mexico and elsewhere. Um, but uh, they've not, never been applied in this type of a setting. And this is actually arguably a setting in which it's, um, you know, this is exactly the kind of mechanism um, that, that should be employed because it avoids that top-down problem with the, with the national government imposing a solution. It avoids the problem of unilateral. And there are mechanisms like um, pretty successful, I think, models here like the uh, World Trade Organization, whereby, um, you know, national governments have decided uh, we're not going to unilaterally disarm in our subsidies but uh, or our protection, but if, if you agree to lay down your arms, we'll lay down our arms. And that turns that prisoner's dilemma into something that I think is much more politically feasible. Um, governors don't have to, you know, feel like they're unilaterally disarming and then all the jobs are going to go to another state. It, it's sort of like an arms control treaty, uh, to use exactly. a parallel, uh, a treaty amongst I guess sort of like a treaty amongst the states to say, okay, we're we're going to all agree to uh, stop using these. Now, I mean, I guess when we get down to some of the the, the details here, you, you'd have to come up with, uh, a, I guess, a definition of what exactly it is you're going to tell that the member states or the states that sign on to such a compact are going to be giving up. So how how would you, you know, I guess the the, the devil is in the details of a definition here, but how how would we go about trying to define something that would be banned uh, under this. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. The devil is definitely in the details. And I do think, I have to say up front, I think there is a possibility that an interstate compact could make things worse if it were not well-designed. So, and uh, I think um, part of the answer here goes back to the beginning of our discussion, which is, you know, how do you define a target economic development incentive? And we were drawing a distinction between a targeted economic development incentive that is state-directed and discriminatory from a um, better policy that's well-supported by the empirical evidence, which is a more general policy, you know, broad-based tax, uh, lower taxes, broad-based uh, reasonable regulations. Um, so what I would say, you know, first of all, the way it could go wrong is uh, you could imagine states basically um, forming some kind of an interstate compact that is more like a tax cartel that just sets the, the, the tax rates. Um, that would be really um, disastrous because it would, you know, an, a, a well-known uh, good feature of federalism is, a uh, uh, federal system is that it encourages governments to compete with one another over the best policy. And right. so we want states to be able to offer the best services to their citizens at the lowest possible cost. But if they can agree to a cartel that says that, you know, the cost is going to be, we're going to set the, 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 um, corporate income tax rate in every state at 20% or something like that, that could be a, a, you know, a big problem because it, it undermines that com competitive aspect of federalism. Uh, so what I would say, a way to avoid that would be to ensure that the interstate compact remains silent on what the actual rate should be. Every state can set its own rates. However, it sh states should be allowed, states should be bound in the sense that whatever rate prevails within their borders, the 
has to has to prevail for everyone. So we can use some of the language actually from international, um, you know, trade agreements. Uh, the, the most favored nation status, for example, mm -hmm. that basically says, you know, once you're in the once you're in a trade agreement, uh, you're going to grant this new country the same status you would to the most favored nation uh, in that, with whom you trade. And so what this would do is say, you know. Uh, every state in Alabama, or every every company in Alabama, ha, ha faces the the same rate. There's they're not allowed to the the state is not allowed to discriminate between mm -hmm. firms. Um, and sim similarly, you could do the same type of thing with subsidies uh, and and regulations. There's going to be some tricky, you know. I, there's still going to be some tricky aspects of it. Uh, there's no doubt about that. You know, for example, figuring out how you deal with. Um, you know, pollution or things like that, where, you know, targeted, uh, you know, something like a, a pollution tax may not necessarily, um, you know, violate or shouldn't violate this type of agreement, because you may want to have people pay for pollution that may make, make sense from a policy perspective. And you don't want to you know, necessarily outlaw that, um, because it would be discriminatory. And, and I guess there's also an issue of, um, you know, I, I guess uh, you, I guess you you want to make sure you're not going to again keep states from being able to to cut their taxes, uh, right. to lower their taxes for for everyone. Now, if we're going to have an agreement like this, there have to be some kind of a, a mechanism for or some kind of a punishment. If a state does something wrong, like, you know, if a, a state has joined a compact like this, and they're they're still going to go ahead and try to make a a, a deal with a company. What would be the way? You know, what would be the punishment? What would be the uh, effect? You know, would people, would citizens be able to take the uh, uh, state to court? Would another state take them to court, or, or what would be the enforcement here? Yeah, you could you could really imagine a number of different uh, ways that this could um, take place. And I, I, you know, will confess I don't have a dog in the race. I I, I, uh, I have some intuitions, but I think it's worthwhile, um, you know, kind of hashing it out. Uh, but so again, to take the WTO as an example, um, states, uh, uh, governments can sue other governments for violations of WT, their WTO uh, agreements, obligations. And you know, one mechanism is governments can then just agree to pay fines, essentially, where taxpayers write checks to the other government uh, for their misdeeds. And that's one possibility. Um, I think another possibility is potentially um, you could uh, allow states, if a state has violated its its um, uh, obligations under the interstate comp compact, you could say, well, you're no longer entitled to the protections of the interstate compact from the other states. Mm -hmm. So for example, let's say Alabama agrees it's not going to offer any subsidies, um, and that's disarming itself, and it's mutually disarming in the sense that it um, it's entered into a compact with 10 other states who have also agreed the same. And then Alabama violates this rule, and they offer a big subsidy to BMW or somebody like that to come in. Um, well, then the other states could, that would, would one mechanism is it might allow the other states to be able to uh, retaliate, essentially, right. and you know, siphon job uh, companies out of Alabama uh, through targeted subsidies. Now, now you get into a thing, into a dynamic where you want to make sure that the punishment doesn't just lead to a deterioration in the entire agreement, right. <laughs> which is possible. Uh, so you have there's kind of a delicate balance here that you you sort of want the punishment to be uh, you know strong enough to de deter states from 
um, you know, violations, but uh, you kind of also, you might think about this in international relations. Uh, pe people talk about this in international relations is you, you want to punish bad actors, but you also want to give them an off ramp, an ability to to come back into compliance um, so that it doesn't just unravel the entire, you know, international or in this case, interstate uh, uh, agreement. You you mentioned it, but, but I just want to ask you specifically, would, it, would a compact like this have to include all of the states or could it work with uh, uh, fewer states than that? So um, I think it would it would be ideal if it ultimately included all the states. But if you look at other compacts, uh, that's typically not the route that they go. And I think that's probably not uh, realistic, at least from the from the get go. Um, most compacts, you know, start with a with a, a few states, um, and it might make sense for you could imagine states that are similar that compete with one another. You know, large states might be some early early formers. Um, or uh, early signers, or you could imagine, you know, smaller states that are, happen to be, you know, co-located, and so they're, you know, worried about businesses hopping the border. Um, so one uh, nice thing about this feature. So by the way, t typically compacts will start with like 10 or 12 states before okay. they trigger and become like, you know, effective. And nice. one nice thing about this is that you could also change some of the mechanisms as it grows. So an oh. early version of it could be just. Uh, states agreeing not to poach um, businesses from one another, and then a later version could say that they can't. They also can't offer targeted incentives to their own homegrown businesses okay. in order to keep from leaving. So that there's a lot of different variations, and I, you know, part of what I want to do is just start a national conversation about this yeah. prospect uh, because I think it is promising. Well. Thanks for coming on and talking about this. We've started our own conversation here. And thanks to you all for joining us. Join us again next time for another eConversations. This has been eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University.